Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we're going to continue here with Daniel chapter 12 this morning. This is an interesting chapter now that we're coming to. It's a great conclusion to this book. But actually, the verses we're going to read now, verses 1 to 4, continues the vision that began in chapter 10, Daniel's fourth vision. This is still the angel speaking to Daniel. So you just got to bear that in mind. These are not Daniel's words. This is a message of the angel to Daniel. So after the angel gave all that historical information in the 11th chapter, and we worked our way through that, very difficult section, but it all lines up with the events of history. Until we come to verse 40 of chapter 11, and then there seems to be a problem. Because the events of verse 40 to 45 of chapter 11, I'm telling you this in preparation for 12. The Bible scholars cannot find anything in history that correlates with the information of 1140 through 45. So it's believed that that section is actually jumping ahead in time, in history, down the road, into the distant future. And that is going to be borne out, that interpretation is borne out by what we're going to read now. And I'll show you that. Let's read verses 1 to 4. Daniel chapter 12, the end of Daniel's fourth vision. At that time there shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Those words sound kind of familiar? The Lord Jesus Christ uses that same language in the Matthew 24. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, Israel, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So notice now in verse 1, and there's going to be four points to my sermon on each of the verses. So verse 1 talks about an unprecedented time of trouble that's coming. Notice how it opens. At that time, 
there shall arise Michael, the great angel. So this links verse 12. Just forget the chapter divisions. They weren't part of the original. That links now what we're talking about with what was just said in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11. At that time, there's, there's continuity now between these sections. And it is transitioning, chapter 12 is transitioning to, clearly, to Vince in the future. But when he says at that time, I want to ask, what time is he talking about? We'll go back to verse 40 of chapter 11. At the time of the end... This is one of the clues that that chapter 11, verse 40 through 45, is talking about something that is far off in the future. But it's described in terms of Antiochus and the the, uh, conflict that was described previously. So it's just, it's couched in that language, but it actually has relevance for something in the future. To me, that's a a very good clue that 40 through 45 is talking about the future because chapter 12 clearly is and is linked to that previous section when it says at that time, the time of the end. Now, what does the angel tell us now? Michael, this is the third time Michael's mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's called the chief prince of... Previously, here he's called the Great Prince. That's, the, that's a title given to Michael because he is the archangel. The only archangel that's mentioned in the Bible that is specifically called an archangel. Well, the, the Jewish people believe there were five or six archangels, and they're all named in their literature. They're not named in the Bible. But we know at least this one. And he has a particular job, you'll notice. He has charge of your people. And the idea of the language is is that he stands over them. He protects them. Back in chapter 10, verse 21, the angel said that he contends by my side. So Michael is described as a warrior in the Bible. You go to the end of the Bible, in chapter 12 of Revelation, he, he, Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon and his angels. That is interesting information that's given to us about Michael. I don't think there's another angel that's described as a fighter like that in the Bible. He has charge of God's people. He is your prince. Chapter 10, verse 21. So I get the impression from that language that Michael is the guardian angel of the Jewish people. Even though they're in a state of unbelief, generally speaking, that they are Israel's guardian angel. I wonder if the United States has a guardian angel. 
Or are we under the influence of those angels that are mentioned in the 10th chapter? The angel prince of those countries that are mentioned, the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel is being assured here of Michael's help and protection. Now he goes on to say, still in verse 21, Michael, your prince, great prince, has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. This is referring to the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ mentions in his sermon that's known as the, the Sermon of the Future, given on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. I'm not sure, because he was in the temple that initiated that discussion. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, that there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world, And if those days were not cut short, no flesh would be saved. Everyone would die. The great tribulation. I believe this is referring to the same thing. An unprecedented time of trouble is coming down the the path. When we turn to the book of Revelation, it's mentioned again in chapter 7, after you have the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish people, from each of the twelve tribes. Many of them are killed. And were they're asked who where did the who are these people? Who where did they come from? These are those that came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So what I'm trying to show here this morning is that there is grounded in the book of Daniel these original statements about the future that Jesus picks up on in his teaching, and it's repeated again in the New Testament. This is making the connection, bridging the area of future prophecy between the Old and the New Testament, but it has its origin in the book of Daniel, the original apocalypse here. The Great Tribulation, unparalleled, unprecedented time of trouble. Bible scholars have often linked a text out of the book of Jeremiah that seems to be talking about the same time period. And I'll read it to you. This is Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. That is for Israel in particular. But he shall be saved out of it. Let's talk about that for a moment because he goes on to say at the end of verse 1, but at that time your people shall be delivered. So this terrible time is coming in the future, with a focus here on Israel going through it, but God says, your people shall be delivered. This is 
exactly what Jeremiah said, but he shall be saved out of it, the time of Jacob's trouble. So what does that mean, that they shall be delivered? There's different ways to understand God's deliverance in the Bible. And I think we could make a case for there's actually three different ways in which a person could be delivered from a crisis, from tribulation, from a horrible time in their life. They shall be delivered. Well, in what sense? Let's, let's go through them. First of all, a person can be delivered out of the situation, just lifted out of it so they escape it. That would be one form of deliverance. Do we have an example of that in the Bible? Well, of course, when Peter was doomed to be executed by Herod in Acts chapter 12, he was thrown in prison. The next day, he was going to be martyred. Herod, first of all, killed James, the brother of John. Peter was next. The angel came, opened the prison, and Peter walked out of that prison. He totally escaped from it by God's intervention, by a deliverance. That's one way that people can be delivered out of a crisis. They're plucked out of it. They totally escape it by miraculous intervention. Another way that a person can be delivered is being delivered through it. While they are going through it, they experience deliverance. Well, what does that mean? That means a person is like preserved while they're going through it. They don't fall into, if it involves some horrific thing that might challenge their faith, they don't fall away, they don't lose their faith. They go through this experience and on they, they get through it on the other side and they're stronger, they're more grounded in their faith. From the book of Daniel, we got the experience of the three Hebrew men in the third chapter who were thrown into the fiery furnace. They go through this horrific trial. Now, in a certain sense, they totally escape it because they're... they're uh, clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Not a hair on their head was singed by this burning, fiery furnace. They totally escaped it, but they had to go through it. They had to go through the experience. They weren't taken out of it, like Peter was out of prison. They went through it, but they were delivered. And they came out on the other side, probably with a greater faith in Yahweh than they had when they went in. They were men of great faith to begin with, but no doubt their faith grew a great deal going through something like that, coming out on the other side. As I thought about this, I think there's also a situation where it involves both of these. Being delivered through it and out of it. Kind of putting those two ideas together. And this is what I mean by that. I think the example in Revelation 7 that I just cited about those who were before the throne having washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and John is, asks, who are these people he sees before the throne? 
And he's told that these are the ones who came out of great tribulation. But they, notice, they came out of great tribulation. So they, they went through the tribulation and they came out of it. But how did they come out of it? They came out of it by death. Death is a form of deliverance for God's people. Because what happens to us when we die? We go into the Lord's presence. We can anticipate glory, being with Him. So we should not have the fear of dying as Christians. Though it's natural to have a fear. I don't look forward to the pain and suffering of dying. I'd like to die in my sleep in the middle of the night, not feel anything. That'd be a glorious way to go home. My grandmother, I was told, when she died at 88, she was sitting in her rocking chair watching Jimmy Swigert back in the late 70s. And uh, my aunt came over to pick her up and tooted her horn. They were going to go shopping together and go to lunch. And my grandmother was sitting in the rocking chair with her purse ready to go out the door. And while she was sitting there, the Lord took her. What a way to go. Yeah, that was so appropriate for her because she was a wonderful, godly person. Yeah. So deliverance can be out of, entirely escape it. It can be through, where we go through it. And another text that I thought of that that bears on this is Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10.13. There has no temptation taken you, or temptation is the same. The the original word in the Greek that's translated temptation is the same word for trial. So it could also, Paul may be referring to trial. There has no trial taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested, tried, Tempted above what you were able to bear, but will, with the trial, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So that's a deliverance through the trial. Those words. Deliverance through. But death is a deliverance out of and through. We go through it, and death delivers us from it entirely. This first verse is packed. Notice the end of verse 1. Your people shall be delivered. That is, in the great tribulation. They're going to be delivered. But now, specifically, which ones? Oh, it's now it's getting... It's going to define it. Make a diff- going to make a distinction. Not everybody in Israel. But those whose names are found written in the book. What book is that? Well, we go to the New Testament, and it's clearly the book of life. This is the book that has the roster of God's elect written in it. This records the names of all the members of God's covenant people. They're written in the book of life. When was your name written in the book of life? Not when you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Way before that. The Bible says our names were written in the book before the foundation of the world. That's an amazing thing. 
to think of. It's not our action or our decision that causes our name to be written in the book. Our names are written in the book before we come to faith. The reason we come to faith is because our name was written in the book. We have that text in the book of Acts that Luke wrote it, gives us a peek into his theology. He says, everyone became a believer. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's it. Acts 13. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. This is, this is the same idea. This is why Jesus told the apostles, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you in Acts 10, or Luke 10. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. This is, this is what prompted Isaac Watts to write that hymn that we used to sing in the churches. Why was I made to hear your voice and to enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why was I made? It's all because of God's sovereign choice of us. He didn't choose us. He didn't write our names because he saw anything that attracted him to us other than he, he out of the amazing infinite love of God's heart, he bestowed his love upon us from all eternity and made us his people, the objects of his love. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and who's there in the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12 and verse 23 says, These are the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who are enrolled in heaven. This book is the roster of God's elect. Okay, let's move on to verse 2. So, we have this statement about Michael's charge over God's people during this horrific time of tribulation. But they're going to be delivered. Those that, whose names are written in the book... Now he passes on to the next thing, actually, in God's calendar of the future, which is the resurrection. Verse 2, the promise of future resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Let's think this through now. Now he does say many. The NIV translates this. Multitudes. He uses many, not uh, not indicating that it's not everyone. This is this. It isn't setting up some sort of a contrast between all or some. That's that's not why the word many is used. The emphasis is upon the fact that it's multitudes, the number of people. It's multitudes. The teaching of Jesus is that all that are in the graves shall come forth. This is John chapter 5 
and verse 28. Jesus said, the hour is coming. Notice it happens in an hour. A certain hour. It's in, it, it, this is something that occurs in time, in history, while we're in this world. An hour is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and will come out of the grave. He's going to awaken the dead. This is the coming resurrection. The dead are described as being asleep. I love it that the Bible uses that metaphor for death. When Jesus told the disciples, we're going to go and wake Lazarus up in John 11, they said, Lord, he'll, he'll wake up. Why do we have to go and wake him up? The idea. And Jesus had to clarify it with them. He said, Lazarus is dead. But he described it as asleep. Why is death described as asleep in the Bible? Because it is not a permanent condition. People might think you're crazy if you were to tell them that. Because the unbelieving world, they see death as a, a final thing and that's it. There's no hope once you die. Every, it's all over. Well, in a certain way it is. But not ultimately. The dead are going to wake up. They're gonna be, this is why we have examples of resurrection in the Bible. This is why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, whose body was already beginning to rot after four days. And the Lord Jesus Christ not only gave him life, but he renewed his body. He had to change his body and make it fresh again. There was a great miracle involved in the resurrection of Lazarus. Death is not a permanent condition. It's one from which we are all going to wake up someday. Notice he describes the grave here. This is clearly language out of Genesis chapter 3. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. After man fell in Genesis 3, God told the original pair, but I think he was addressing primarily the man here in verse 19. Well, he was, clearly. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's a very appropriate way to speak of the grave, the end of life, and where we all eventually go. But it's not the end. This is the glorious hope that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, the future hope of the resurrection. We must never forget this. This is the final aspect of our salvation. We're not completely saved yet. You may be reconciled to God and have your sins forgiven, and if you died now, you go into his presence, but you're not completely saved. 
There's a final aspect to salvation. It's the salvation of our body. God has a glorious future for our bodies. Now, the result of the resurrection, notice, a distinction is made by the resurrection. Multitudes of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Because, see, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, not everybody is dead. That could be one of the reasons why he says many. Paul says there's going to be, there are many people who are going to be alive when Jesus comes, so they're not going to, they're not going to need to be woken up out of the grave. There'll be believers that will be transformed. This is first, this is Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, known as the, the rapture passage, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But Paul says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But that's when the body is transformed by resurrection. Those that are alive still experience a resurrection change to their body. You don't have to be dead to undergo the transformation of the body later. The whole idea of the change of the body belongs to everybody, even unbelievers. Think of this. Jesus said, all that are in the grave shall come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Where do you think Jesus drew those words, probably no doubt from Daniel, his familiarity with Daniel, because Daniel says the same thing. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. By the way, this is the first time in the Old Testament it talks about everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there it is. This is the... Dual destiny of mankind. We're either going into everlasting life or into everlasting shame and contempt. Pretty frightening words for an unbeliever if he takes it seriously. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in his prophetic sermon that I mentioned which continues in Matthew 25. It's not just Matthew 24. It's in chapter 25 as well. The chapter ends after description of the final judgment. The shepherd has divided mankind like... The judge has divided mankind like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And of the sheep, he says, these shall go into... Everlasting life and the goats into everlasting punishment. Matthew 25, 46. A dual destiny of mankind. We're headed for one or the other. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, we would all be sentenced 
to everlasting condemnation and death. He is the one who has made it so there's going to be many who do not go that way that will be delivered from everlasting condemnation. Let me talk about just for a moment resurrection. Just a little sidebar here on resurrection. In the ancient world, the ancient Near East, that area of the world, there were many different concepts of, the, of life beyond the grave. Many different views on that. The Bible is very unique in its teaching of resurrection. No other religion or people had this view of resurrection. Generally, the Greeks thought of the body as evil and that you don't, it's good to get rid of the body and then there's something for your soul, a higher existence. But they didn't see that there was a future for the body. But this is the teaching of the Bible because God made us body, soul, and spirit. I'm not a complete person without my body. I want my body changed. This is, this is a very special teaching in the Word of God. I'm saying all this to inspire us to study this doctrine more. This is a very important teaching of the Word of God, the resurrection of the body. Here's the elements to the biblical view of resurrection. It is universal and individual to begin with. So everybody's going to be resurrected in some way. Even the unbeliever is going to undergo a resurrection. It applies to all, and it's individual. Secondly, it's, it's physical, it's bodily, it's material. This is not a, like a spiritual resurrection. This is not my spirit, some change over my No, it's completely about the body. The body's going to undergo a change. It's going to go from being mortal, subject to, to death, disease, corruption, to being galvanized with immortality. The body of the unbeliever is going to become immortal. Never going to die, the body of an unbeliever, as well as a Christian. It takes place in this world, not the spirit world. And it distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, as described here. Both are going to be raised, but clearly there's a different end for them after having the body resurrected and changed. I'm going to say it very bluntly. The wicked will have a body that will never die, and they will go into everlasting torment with a body. This is the teaching of the Word of God. This brings out the seriousness of sinning against Yahweh. One sin is infinite guilt before an infinite being. Remember how Jonathan Edwards, a talked about it before, how Jonathan Edwards argued for 
the eternity of hell. His argument was a crime, the seriousness of a crime depends upon the object of that crime. Like I would apply it to like assassinating a president is far worse than murdering a common citizen. Both are murder, but because this is the president of the United States that somebody dared to assault and kill, this is a way higher offense. Now apply that principle to sin against God. God is an infinite being. Therefore, sin becomes an infinite crime demanding infinite punishment. Very clear. This is why hell is eternal. And then let me end with this about resurrection. Only in the Bible, only in the Bible do we find the teaching that man will be greater after death while keeping his body. Turn that over in your mind. That comes out of Hank Hanegraaff's book, Resurrection. Verse 3. The promise of future glorification. This is what we have next. This, this to me is an amazing outline of the future that the angel gave to Daniel. This can all be correlated with what we find in the New Testament. And those who are wise, four times the wise have been mentioned in chapter 11 and now chapter 12. Actually, this is the third mention of those who are wise. The fourth time comes later in chapter 12. See, God's people have been characterized by wisdom. Wisdom is, according to the Bible, the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. All true and solid wisdom begins with the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God. These are the, this is true wisdom. There is no real wisdom unless it starts there. Knowing who I am and knowing something about God. True and solid wisdom. So God's people are described and characterized as the wise here in the Bible. Notice that the wise shall shine like the glorious heavenly bodies. Huh? Well, this is an interesting fact that is taught to us in the New Testament about the, resurrect, the resurrected body. That the resurrected body will have a glow and a brilliance about it. A radiance. We're not going to look at each other as we appear right now. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he raised, was raised from the dead, he looked like he always did in many ways. That radiance was not showing yet. But you go to Revelation chapter 1, or go to the experience of the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone as bright as the sun. And his glory that knocked Paul on his face in Acts 9 and blinded him for three days. That was the glory of the resurrected Christ. Paul says that when he comes a second time, 
He is going to transform our lowly bodies to be made like his body of glory. This is Philippians 3.21. We're going to have a body of glory. We're going to shine as the sun. Not the sun, perhaps, but the stars. A little lesser uh, power there involved. Not the sun. They're going to shine like the stars forever and ever. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 13 of the righteous, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 43, that section, he says that the stars differ in glory, so it is with the resurrection of the body. Some are sown in dishonor, but raised, sown in dishonor, not some, sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. So there's going to be something amazing about the resurrected body in its appearance. Taught right here, Old Testament. But the wiser particularly noted for what is said about them. Those who turn many to righteousness. I personally have the view that as there are degrees of glory among the heavenly bodies, that's clear about the stars. The astronomers rank stars describe them in terms of their brightness and so on. And they discovered recently the brightest star that has now been singled out from the universe that they have found. And yet it's so far away that there is going to be degrees of glory among God's people. And here it seems to be indicating that, that those that turn many to righteousness... Isn't that what our, our life is about as Christians? We're to be involved in trying to help our fellow men who are lost, who are doomed, who are facing a terrible future, to turn them to righteousness, try to bring them to faith. Those that are involved in this work, especially, they're going to shine bright. God is going to honor that. Somehow in the future glorification. So verse 3 is all about the glorification of the body after resurrection. Okay, let me uh, conclude now with verse 4. So Daniel has this amazing fourth vision unfolded to him, and he's told now to shut up the words, to, to close this book. Um, it's really interesting what he's told here. I think because the, the vision now, this vision is finished. He's, the vision has come to a conclusion. Now he's told what to do with it. Uh, guard it, protect it, to ensure its safekeeping. And added to that is to seal it. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Almost as saying, you know, this, the, what you've seen, Daniel, 
it's not relevant right now for you or your people. This is centuries in the future that is being given to us here. So there, we, there will come a time in the future when the book is going to be opened again. It's going to be very relevant and applicable to God's people. But for right now, close it up. The vision's finished. Seal it. The contents will become applicable in the future. Until the revelation will have application for the coming age. Or the end of time, rather. Not the coming age. Wrong choice of words. Now notice how it ends. Now I've often heard the ending being explained as uh, in the last days, in the near the end of history, there's going to be an acceleration of travel, an acceleration of knowledge or education, and so on. And I, I agree with the commentators that th- that's not the meaning. That's not the meaning here. The verb here depicts a roving about, uh, going to and fro. That idea is there in the text. But it's in order to discover knowledge. Rather. The NIV says it like this. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. And I think in this context that that's more in keeping with the sense of the vision. The book of Daniel will be opened, and for many it will satisfy that pursuit of knowledge and information. We'll get the knowledge we really want from the Word of God. The opposite is said at the end of the Bible, by the way, Revelation 22 and verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice that, the end of the Bible. Don't seal it up. Daniel's told to seal his book. It's not relevant yet. Come to the end of the Bible, don't seal the book. For the time is near. The time is near. Now, that's given to the church 2,000 years ago. It's still more near now than when we first believed. What is the, t- the time? As a kid, I always wondered about how the Bible ended before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a curiosity. How does the Bible end? And I looked at it several times. I want to know, what's the conclusion to this book? And to come to the end and behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. Even so, come Lord Jesus. It ends with a prayer of the Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle John. So seal up the book, the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. A wonderful ending to the Bible. But it fits right in with Daniel. So what would be the takeaway from this. Hopefully it's been clear. (laughs) A future is planned for this world 
the sovereign God that rules all things has it mapped out what's going to happen. There's an order to events, and Daniel has outlined it for us here beautifully. Tribulation, death and resurrection, glorification. This is our hope as Christians. We need to keep this always in our mind as we live life day to day so we don't get too caught up in the things of this world. This world's very temporary. I'm just uh, passing through, like they say, and uh, my home is coming, my ultimate dwelling place. I trust for all of us it will be with the Lord in his presence, with glory and the beautific vision that many of the past spoke about, seeing God. That's the thing I look forward to. I want to see him. I want to see Jesus Christ, but I also I want to see God in his glory unveiled. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.